We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. For several years now, I've been helping schools implement trauma-informed strategies in their schools. Now, as students are starting to come back to school, the need for this is greater than ever. Here's the thing. I'm not a social worker, and I don't pretend to be. So my training really focuses on practical strategies that you can implement in your school without making your teachers feel like they have to be social workers also. I help schools implement trauma-informed strategies so that fewer discipline referrals, fewer dysregulated students, and a calmer, more focused atmosphere. And the best thing is, this training aligns perfectly with ESSER funding, so you don't have to take it out of your school budget. My clients report that they have better sense of how to help their students without adding another thing to their plate. Go to jethrojones.com trauma to read more about it, and let's schedule a chat. That's jethrojones.com trauma. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have on the program today uh, Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. He is a cognitive neuroscientist with expertise in human learning, memory, and brain stimulation. He earned his master's degree from Harvard and his doctorate from the University of Melbourne. In 2018, Dr. Horvath co-founded LME Global to bring his pioneering brain and behavioral research to teachers, organizations, and professionals looking to boost their performance and gain a competitive edge. To inquire about booking Dr. Horvath for a speaking engagement or to view his courses and training materials, go to lmeglobal.net. Today, we're going to talk about his new book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. And so 
Jared, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thank you so much for having us. This is our second time together now, so glad to be back. Yeah, so uh, second time, and if you want to check out the other one, just go to jetsrojones.com uh, slash podcast, and you can search for it there. Also, have links in the show notes if somebody wants to to talk about that. And I think um, our topic was Stop Talking, Start Influencing. That was your last book. Yeah, right? so those are all just principles of learning that we can apply. Yeah. And so I've, I've kind of got like a theme going on. So that book was 12 Principles from Brain Science. Here we have 10 things schools get wrong. Next book, I'll find something to do eight things with. Yeah, and I'll just work totally. my way down and then I'll yep. retire comfortably. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> when you get down to one thing you need to do, then you know you've hit it. So that's it. I've said the one answer and it is follow your dreams. <laughs> See you later. There you go. You've already finished. Pull the curtain. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So let's talk about these 10 things and we're not going to go into all of them, but let's let's talk about a couple. What are a couple of the the well, one thing that we get wrong that we definitely need to get right, where would you start? Yeah. So I'd, I'd say, believe it or not, and this isn't one of the chapters in the book, but this is the first line in the book is education is not broken, which is very weird. Cause I say, I, I say a lot of things that people would construe as controversial because coming from a cognitive science angle, the way we view learning is, is different than the way most schools view learning. So there's, there's overlap, but there can be a lot of clash there. So a lot of the things I'll say, will get pushed back. Totally fine with that. But the number one craziest thing I say that people push back is that, is that education is not broken. I think a lot of people have a, um, a vested interest in the revolution model of education that, Oh, that's it. One thing's wrong. Throw it in the trash. Let's all start again. Oh, we have computers now. That's it. Everything we've done is wrong. Let's just rebuild it all. And I think if we were, if we have one thing to start from, it's that let's accept that education by and large is working incredibly well. And it has been doing so for thousands of years. Um, today, we have more, more people are graduating than ever before. More people around the world have access to education than ever before. Scores for what they're worth are getting higher. Well-being has never been more on the table than it is before. We're getting millions of teachers are getting things completely right. Now, with that said, so I always say like 85% of what we do is fine. We don't have to throw all that out. It's just now we've got 10, 15% on the other end that we can always be evolving. And this isn't about solving it, getting it right. It's about getting it right for now. And then next year, evolving it beyond there. That's the the cutting edge of education. So I'm, I'm a, just want to, it was one thing, it's anything we talk about schools improving or changing it's not a revolutionary model. It's one of the small things we can tweak to make things 10% better with recognition that if we tweak nothing, everyone would still be doing just fine. I mean, that's my, my big joke is think of all the people who call for revolution. Every single one of them is doing their TED Talks. They're writing their books. They're, they're out. They all made it through the same schooling system we did. So apparently it works enough to get you to where you wanted to be. So it can't be all that broken if you're having a good old time. It's just, it's become yeah. an easy pot shot to say school's broken. It's like, no, let's start from the belief that it's not. And now let's just start kind of cranking from there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I've, I've said numerous times that school is broken because I do think school is broken, but I don't think yeah. the education is broken, which is yeah, an interesting yeah. point that you made to say education instead of school, because yeah. there are a lot of ways where school is is not doing what we need it to, or is training us for the wrong things. And, but learning and education, I mean, that is an individual issue from the very beginning, 
no matter what, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, it's always going to be an individual deciding to engage in it or not. And the choice is really that simple. And so in my opinion, what we should do is set up our systems so that kids want to choose to be engaged in it instead of forcing them to be engaged in it. But again, that's a very small thing. Like you're saying, the the little things can really make a big impact. So yeah. one of the things that you talk about is uh, expertise and how there is a problem with experience. Sometimes that experience gets in the way. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, I, I think so. If we come in saying, okay, things aren't dire. It's it's not about throwing everything to pieces. We now get to say, okay, what's one of the, the key things we need to tweak? And I think this kind of falls into two categories. And I would say it's the recognition that teachers are experts. It's the weirdest thing in the world. But if, if everyone just accepted this one premise, that when it comes to the craft of teaching, teachers are the only human beings in the world that have devoted the time, thought, effort, energy to that craft more than anyone else, which by the very definition of the word expertise means they are the experts. We've got this really weird thing going on in education where we're kind of outsourcing expertise where we think the answer can be found outside of the classroom. So if you go to, so I went to in the granted, these are all digital. Thank you, COVID, but go to like a police conference, 90 to 95% of the speakers are going to be active policemen and women telling you about their job and what's going on. If you go to a law conference, 90 to 95% of the people speaking are lawyers talking about what's going on in the job. If you go to an education conference, a teaching conference, 90 to 95% of the speakers are going to be researchers from academia who have never once stepped foot in a classroom and are going to talk to you about your job that they know nothing about. And that's the issue with expertise is we've farmed out, we believe we've conflated expertise in learning with expertise in teaching without recognizing that the two are very different. Certainly they overlap. But you can be an incredible teacher without ever understanding the learning process. And you can know a ton about learning and be an absolutely filthy teacher. Just go to uni and work with some of the people I work with, sit through one of their lectures. Oh, you'll see the two don't translate. So in school, I think one of the big next steps we have to take is recognize that teaching is a thing. It is not just something we do because we're good at something else. It is its own craft, its own profession. And in order to get good at it, just like anything else, you have to devote the time, the thought, the effort. The people doing that are the teachers themselves. Once we start to focus on the craft and start to say, okay, as the experts, you tell us what's going on, what's really working. Now we can build a bridge between the laboratory and the classroom where it's not researchers trying to tell you how to do your job. It's researchers conceptually telling you what we know about learning, teachers practically telling you what we know about teaching. And now we get to see where the two kind of resonate. Does that, does that kind of make sense with you? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing I'd add to that is that when you, when you put teachers in the position of being experts at teaching, I mean, one of the worst things that I hate hearing is those who can't do teach. And so it's like, it just grates on me because you're not, you're not a teacher because you can't do that other thing, but perhaps, and there's nothing at all wrong with this, perhaps you enjoy or are actually better at teaching someone how to do it rather than doing the actual thing. And there are some things where that is very much the case and that is okay also. Well, you ask, we, we got the statistics in there. 85% of teachers join the teaching force 
because they want to teach. They want to impact the next generation, not because everything else fell apart and like, well, what's left? Guess I'll teach. No, they've selected that profession specifically. And it's funny, is I'm same as you, that those who can't do teach, the underlying assumption is we all teach. We all just come out of the womb with the ability to teach and only the biggest drop kicks need to rely on that skill. It's like breathing. If you can do nothing else, do that. And that's so nonsense. By that same definition, it's those who can't play coach. Well, no, I think we've realized in the last couple of decades that coaching is a very specific thing and a lot of players can't do it very well. You need to devote the time, the thought, the effort to that. It's the same with teaching. When you recognize it is a standalone profession with its own rules, its own skills, its own abilities, then you start, you give them a voice and you start to bring them to the table. I mean, one of the worst things, and sorry to go on a little tangent here, but a couple of years ago, I was at a conference, um, excuse me, a curriculum meeting with the government here. There's about a hundred people. We're all talking curriculum and about 10 minutes into the conversation, I said, wait, stop. Can you raise your hand if you're a teacher? hundred people in that room, guess how many were teachers? Congrats. You can count it on no hands. The answer was zero. You had lawyers, you had neuroscientists, you had researchers, politicians, not a single teacher. And when I said, doesn't anyone kind of think this is weird that we don't have a, any practicing teachers in this room right now? And they hemmed and they hawed and everyone discussed and they came out with the answer that, no, it's not weird because, and I kid you not, teachers are levers. We're controlling the machine. Students are the customer and they refer to them as being customers. Students are customers, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know where that happened. And teachers are merely levers we pull to make sure our customers get what they need. That was the belief. That little section is what made me say, okay, I got I to gotta talk about this. This has to be something that we lock down because if, if the people making the big decisions top down don't view teaching as an actual thing, then we got a problem. And until we can get them to recognize, yes, this is a profession, then we'll never have a seat at that table. And until we get a seat at that table, we're just at the whim of a bunch of people who don't even know what we do. Yeah, which is the reality uh, of our situation. We have been a very much a lever that is controlled and manipulated by other people ad nauseum. And it's frustrating to think about that because it doesn't have to be that way. And there are ways around that. And that is just the the most frightening thing about what you, the story you just shared is that they all felt very comfortable saying teachers are the lovers and we control the lovers. I mean, that's the part that is just mind blowing because it, it's like, wait a minute, if that's what's going on, like, what are we doing? And it just gives credence to the idea that none of the stuff that we do in schools really matters all that much because it's just the levers of somebody else who wants to be in power. And I always say, if that's it, man, if, if teaching is nothing more than a set of behaviors that raise or lower a student's ranking, then replace us, man, put a computer. A computer is far better at following an algorithm than a human being ever will be. But if we accept that teaching is a little bit more than just following the top 10 list of hits and hots and do these 10 things, don't do these 10 things. If teaching is a little bit more than that, then you have to start to say, okay, what is it? And who are the people that know? It's the people that are doing it. So let's give them a voice. Yeah, well, and one of the other things that we get wrong is is about computers. And I think that that's a good next next place to talk about because, you know, my perspective on this is that for if we just want teachers to regurgitate and dispense information, then again, we they should be replaced by computers. And a lot of the stuff that I saw during the pandemic from teachers was really just dispensing information. And there is no good reason to pay a human being a salary to do that. 
when you can write a computer program to do it, like you said, more effectively. And if that's what teaching is, yes, they should be replaced. I don't believe that's what teaching is. Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, you, and you get your spot on. So, so if you think of learning kind of, a lot of people talk about learning as a thing or a moment or an event. It's not, it's a long trajectory. And so what we talk about in research is we kind of talk about levels of learning and the easiest way to break it down is you've got surface learning, you've got deep learning, you've got transfer learning. Cool. That's kind of the trajectory. Now, surface learning is all about the locking down of facts because we know cognitively if you don't have information embedded in your long-term memory, there's not a ton you can do with it. Once information's in your schema, now you can bring your skills to bear. Creativity emerges, cognitive or excuse me, critical thinking, you can start to play with that stuff. So surface learning is really important. The problem is, is most people define learning only at that surface level and that's where they leave it. And in which case, if surface learning is all about the locking down of facts, then you're spot on. A computer algorithm can probably do that very well. Most teachers, they're okay with surface learning, but their passion is to get into deep levels one, two, and three really quickly and start to say, now that we got this information, how are we going to organize it? What are we going to do with it? How does that change our worldview? That's the stuff that doesn't have a specific outcome. So surface learning is binary. It's got a very clear outcome. Either you know it or you don't. It's on or it's off. What's the capital of Australia? Regardless of what you just said, it's either right or it's wrong surface. Deep learning is is organization. There's no one answer. This is where we start to see, okay, what is a world capital? What defines a world capital? Now you can make arguments. And this is where computers fall apart because without a very clear end goal, a computer can adapt so long as it knows where it needs you to get, it can make it harder, easier to get you to that stage. But when you say there is no stage to get to, now you need human judgment to say, okay, tell me what you're thinking. And when a kid comes out with some wonky answer that you've never thought of in 40 years that no computer program would have ever thought of, but you hear it and you go, dang, that's probably right. Congratulations. You're now in deep learningville, and that requires human interaction, human content, human decision-making. And so that's the stuff that all teachers love is the stuff that computers by definition will never be able to do. And if we want our students to get there, which everyone calls for, we want deep learning, in which case, congratulations, you need us. And, and an yeah. algorithm can't replace that. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's a piece where I, I really think that that is why teachers go into education is to have those moments with kids where kids make a connection to something else that matters in their life. And, you know, how many times have we been uh, in teacher interviews and the teacher says, you know, I just love seeing the light bulb go off. Like that's a powerful experience for somebody to see that and to be part of that learning moment, because that is the kind of thing that kids don't forget that they remember for a long time. And to be part of that is like a sacred, special event that you want to cherish. And and all too often, our our education is focused on we need to you know get the surface level learning that you're talking about and not go deep. But depth is the only reason why anybody ever sticks with it. That's the only reason why teachers show up every day is for the chance at that deep learning. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. 
The latest John Cap publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. And that's in it, it, it takes time. That's the one scary thing is that's the one thing we don't have with a jammed curriculum with the, the full, full day. We don't have time. But the more we can kind of think about this and recognize this and remember that that is our ultimate job. That's a thing which separates us from everything else is at school, we as the human beings, as the teachers have the ability to do that. Then we can think, what's the way to build it in? Can I buy an hour a week where all we're going to do is discuss something that moves so far beyond the textbook that now I'm like, yeah, you're going to pass your test. You're fine. But now let's talk about the breaks. Where does this fall apart? That's the juice. And that's the, and you're absolutely right. That's the things that gets them out of bed. That's the things that get us out of bed. How do we kind of live in that and get the world to recognize that that is important. That doesn't happen accidentally. That doesn't happen on a program nine times out of 10. It happens with people. Yeah. Well, and, and with that, the, the opportunities that are there for kids to do that really make an impact on them as well, as you were saying. And when I've taken this approach, uh, like I mentioned, this district that I'm going to be working with next year uh, about what I call student-driven learning, which is, you know, student-centered, which is project-based, which is personalized, like all that stuff combined into one. And the difference is I intentionally say that the student is driving that learning, going back to what I said before, that they're the ones who are truly in charge of their learning. Nobody else can be. It's impossible for anybody else to be. So when they do that and when they take control and say, I'm going to be in charge, the learning that happens is off the charts. Like you can't record it. They will learn things. And if you're paying attention in this way, they will learn things that are not on any test that you could find. They will learn things that are not part of any standard uh, document that says, here's what kids are supposed to learn. And what's amazing is that it transcends age as well. And so kids who are seven years old can learn and understand things that you wouldn't expect someone to get when they're taking calculus in high school. You know, that the thing is, is that they can make connections and understand things in different ways that we never give them credit for, except when we actually see it happen. And so all the research in the world can't convince me to go against what I just said because I've actually seen it happen. So you can't tell me that it's impossible for a seven-year-old to understand calculus because I saw the kid doing calculus and not knowing that's what they were doing because they were given the opportunity to do those things rather than just trying to make it work or you know trying to just follow the set curriculum. It wasn't meaningful to them. And what you'll see is, and this becomes another issue too. So if you say kind of expertise is an issue, the next big issue I would say then is evidence. So laboratory-based evidence, by definition, has to be surface-based learning because we need binaries. That's how statistics work. We can't work in qualitative. We can't work in nebulous or anecdote. We need to somehow lock down numbers. The easiest way to lock down numbers is to 
stick with surface learning is to binary things. Here's what, if a kid knows calculus, they should be able to do X, Y, Z in this order. That's how we define it. Now we don't make any qualms about it. We know we're narrowly defining it. The problem is the rest of the world seems to have forgotten that we're only talking about a very small sliver of evidence, evidence that we as a field has decided this is what we are going to accept and count as evidence. Now, when you come in and you say, look, we see transformation, we have aha moments, we have kids um, doing things that we never would have looked at. Cool. You're absolutely right. None of that will ever show up on our research because it can't, because we don't recognize that as evidence. Doesn't mean it's not right. right. It just means in our narrow field, we won't define that as evidence. So if I want to publish in my field, I just can't use it. So here's where we start to see a big issue with evidence is every field gets to define their level of evidence. For some reason, we've made the mistake that evidence is, is like a, a noun. It's a thing that I can go dig up in the garden and it exists only in one box and scientists tell us what that is. And if it ain't in that box, sorry guys. And this is where we get the Hatties and the Marzanos of the world. Statisticians who aren't teachers, but they understand scientific evidence. And they say, here's what you got to do. In truth, every field divines its own evidence. Go to law. The primary source of evidence for law is precedence. What did some judge say six years ago? In science, we don't accept precedence at all. We, in fact, our job is to break precedence. So does that mean all lawyers pack up and say, well, I guess we're not doing, we're not doing real work, anyone. Let's, let's go home. Hell no. They say, cool, you do your job. We're doing the law. We do our job. Two don't have to meet. You go to an anthropologist. They say stories, myth. That's their source of evidence. We don't recognize it. They don't care. They say, I'm not doing your job. I'm doing my job. Teachers, that's where we now get to say is education. What matters as evidence to us? And if researchers, if scientists say, I'm sorry, that doesn't count as evidence. We don't have to bow to them and say, oh, well, I guess we better quit and follow you. We get to say, cool, you do your job. We'll do ours. So long as the evidence we've defined makes sense to every other teacher, our field gets it and accepts it then we don't have to impress any other field. And if it can't be statistically tested, that's okay. I cannot tell you how many professions use evidence that can't be run through statistics. We are not in a mathematical world. That is science. That is what we do. But everyone else is allowed to breathe beyond our constraints. And so that's where I think the next level, if you want to get teachers at that table, at that curriculum meeting I'm talking about, it's one thing to recognize them as a profession Now, the next step is we have to develop a body of knowledge for teachers, by teachers, defined by the evidence levels of teachers, a body of knowledge that only they can create. Once we have that, because think about it, go around that table at that meeting. Lawyers, they can point to an entire library and say, you want to know my job? Go read all those books. That's my job. You point to a neuroscientist. Here's a hundred years of what we've been doing. You want to talk to me? Catch up. And then we'll start with where I'm at. Teachers, we got nothing to point to. We haven't systematized the way we we document or collect our evidence, whatever it's going to be. So once we can lock down, okay, what is meaningful evidence to us? Then we can figure out a consistent way to collect it. Then we can build a body of knowledge. And now we can push back and say, okay, you want to tell me how to do my job? There's the last 25 years of my job on this bookshelf. Read that. And then we'll start talking. Well, and unfortunately, what we've said is we pointed to Marzano, Hattie, Danielson, and others and said, that's our job. And they're not educators anymore. And that that's just the plain, simple truth of it. We have, we, we have outsourced that 
to researchers and tried to adopt what they say to be to be the gospel truth and and it's not and we need to stop doing that because it's not helping anybody and all it's all it's doing is helping them continue to to push their ideas and influence onto our profession and that's that's the recognition of the difference between learning and teaching scientists we do not research teaching we don't we research learning. How do human beings learn? Marzano, Hattie, all of them, they know about learning. All the research is learning. Learning is great. That is definitely what we do as teachers. But teaching is also a practice. It is a craft. It is one thing to know how students learn to read. It's another thing to actually walk a student through that process. And I can point to, like, I know, I could tell you everything about the brain mechanisms of learning or to read. But if somebody said, hey, I've got a one-year-old kid or first grader, can you help me teach them how to read? No, I know what steps they have to go through, but I don't know how to walk them through those steps. Meanwhile, I've got a neighbor who's a first grade teacher. She can teach any kid how to read. And if I talk to her about the brain mechanism, she says, I don't care. I don't need to know that. I know what the process of teaching reading looks like and how that's actually manifesting through learning is irrelevant to me. The two become dissociable. And so long as we continue to conflate learning, which is research-based with teaching, which is practice-based, we're, ne- we're, we're going to always make a mistake. And our, our profession becomes bowing to the people who do work that we don't understand. I, uh, as a teacher, hopefully you don't understand what we do in a lab any more than a laboratory technician knows what you do in a classroom. So just like you have to take us at face value, that's essentially what we're doing. We're trusting that what we say matters and makes sense to you. No one tells us differently. So we're like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. This, I know all about teaching. We got to draw the line between the two and recognize, no, you're doing something unique. Own that profession and tell us what's what. Yeah, I, I really like that approach. And I think that it is long overdue. We've spent too much time, as you said, bowing down to researchers who, who don't know our profession in the way that we do. You know, I was talking with uh, the Dr. Jeff Temple at the University of Texas Medical Branch about the same exact thing only a little bit different. We were talking about learning how to ride a bike and how you learn that by doing it. If you just study the mechanics of what it takes to ride a bike, you're going to get on the bike and you're probably going to fall over because we all know that you have to push on the pedals. But when it comes to you being on this, these two skinny wheels and you're wobbling back and forth, then all that stuff you may have learned in your brain goes out, you know? And and when you think about like the movie, the matrix, they plug that, all that information in, and that's, you know, cool that you could do that. But even still, you still need to learn how to apply those things that you have in your yeah. brain because it is about the mind and the body. And it's not just about, you know, getting it because you happen to have the information in your head. And craft is craft. is craft. It's practice. It's not theory. And I think this now extends to teacher training, too, is when you... You go to a teacher training at the university I work at, it's all theory. And it's, it is, you'll know about Piaget, you'll know about Vygotsky, you'll know about all these things. And the joke is, as soon as you hit the classroom, you will never use Piaget ever again. It's irrelevant knowing the stages of learning. When you've got a crying three-year-old over here, you've got some kid throwing a toy over here, you got a parent calling you on the phone saying what's what, and you realize, wait a second, teaching is a practice what do I do now? Nobody taught me what to do. And you end up learning the craft in the first two years on the job. So it's, it's, it's as it's similar to if you, so let's say I've got 
a friend who wants to lay bricks. He wants to build walls. Cool. So in order to train you to build walls, what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you about the history of cement and the physics behind how it sets and what's going on. And then I'm going to teach you about the physics of, of balance and how things kind of, but the one thing I'm going to make sure you never do is build a wall. And now I'm going to send you out into the real world and say, go do your job. And the first time you get on the job, you're going to say, what do I do? The theory was cute, but it is irrelevant to the practice. Now, eventually when you get good at the practice, now watch as you start to marry theory and practice. Once you get confident and you start to reach expertise. So expertise in the field is essentially automaticity. You build enough what we call mental schemas or schemata that you can read a situation incredibly quickly and start to react on the fly. That takes time to get to that stage. When I first learned basketball, I can't do anything. You play basketball for 10 years. Now you just have so much more recognition knowledge that you can just react on the fly. You hit that stage with your teaching. Now watch when theory starts to make sense because you have the cognitive space. You have the mental load to say, okay, I get the craft. Now what the hell was Piaget saying? Okay, that resonates here. That doesn't resonate here. That makes sense here. Now what's Hattie saying? Well, that makes sense here. That doesn't make sense here. Till we lock down the craft, all the theory in the world is we either got to take it as read, in, in which case it's a, it's a recipe, replace us with a computer, or it means nothing until we lock down our skills. So how do we change? If we kind of take this to its limit, it's does teacher training then have to become pure practice-based? And I, I could see no argument why that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the same thing like with a doctor that is practice-based also. They need residencies. They need time in front of patients. And, you know, my daughter was in a, we are in a doctor's office and there was a, a resident that was there, uh, an orthopedic surgery resident. And his, his bedside manner was just terrible. And he was talking down to my daughter, like she was an idiot. And, and so I called him on it afterward. And I said, when the doctor was back in there with us, I said, Hey, when when the resident was asking my daughter questions, he was talking down to her and acting like she couldn't respond or couldn't understand. And she, I will say she does have Down syndrome. So some people think that that's okay because her mental capacity is lower. But I said, that's not okay for him to treat my daughter that way. And so you, resident, you need to do a better job of treating your patients with respect. The doctor, our actual doctor was like, well, I really appreciate that because... I wasn't in here when that was happening. I wouldn't have known that otherwise. And he's still learning how to interact with people. He needs that additional support and feedback. And, you know, I've never seen this guy again, of course. So who knows if he paid attention or, or took my comments to into account. But we really do need a practice-based approach to teaching. Now, I say this because I became a teacher, not because I graduated from college with a bachelor's in education. But because I had a bachelor's in English and felt the call to be a teacher and so did an alternative routes to licensure and didn't get any of that theory until I had already been teaching. And at that point, I was like, this is actually useful. I would have part of the reason why I didn't get a degree in education is because I didn't want to sit through those lame classes and not do any teaching because that's what I what I needed to be able to do. So it it. That would really change a lot of things, but I think we should still push for that kind of a change in education. And it's in, and I like what you're the, the doctor one is a really good example in that the the teacher is the expert, the one that's been around for a while. And what we do in in education, and everyone listening to this knows this, is once you get so it takes 
a minimum of five years of practice till you reach your first plateau of teaching. We tend to see teachers hit their, not their peak, but their first plateau at five years. But what tends to have, so you could, you could assume, okay, the first time you could ever reasonably enter into the conversation of being, being called an expert teacher is five years of work. Cool. What we tend to do is at five years of work, we either circle you out and bring in the new people. And that's the rotating door model that a lot of like here we have teach for Australia. It's all about just bringing new fresh blood, which is sucks because no one ever has the time to actually lock something down. Or for the few people we don't rotate out, we then put them into leadership positions. We say, okay, now that you've understood how to teach, stop teaching. And it's like, I don't, I've, I've never quite understood. It's like, as soon as you get really good at orthopedics and you become the best surgeon, it's like saying now, we're not going to let you do surgery anymore. We're going to have you do accounting. You don't even teach as a leader. You still, you don't even teach the next generation. So rather than shuffling people out, if we can say, okay, you get to five, you get to 10, you get to 20 years, instead of retiring, instead of pushing you up into leadership, we're going to make you the next university teacher. So you're going to have two or three students next year that are just going to shadow you all year and you teach them, you become the mentor. And now you get to continue to do what you love to do. You're not forced into any position you don't want to do. You're not forced into retirement, but you're helping the next generation start where you ended as opposed to starting where you started. So everyone gets that kind of step up into the next level. So we continue to progress. And with that, you also get to give the crappy parts of your job to the people coming up, which honestly is not a bad idea. So um, they got to learn to do it sooner or later. That's kind of look. We all had to go through the the rigors of attendance. And now the new LMS systems, oh, they do my head in. Oh my gosh, they're so complex. I used to just write things in a ledger and then you'd sit down for your meeting and say, here's here's what we got. Nope, there's all the bops and bips and the buttons and I don't know who's doing what. And then you got to copy this line, paste it over here. That's the stuff that once I learn it, I'm more than happy to say, now you get to learn it. And when the parents call, now you have to learn how to deal with parents and it's going to suck. Just like it sucked for me, but that's how we're going to get good at this by doing it instead of just talking about some dude in 1960 said this about learning, which we don't even believe anymore, but I need you to know this. Why do you need to know? I do as a researcher. You certainly don't as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there, we only got through two and a half of the things out of the 10 that we are getting <laughs> wrong. So I encourage people to check out the book, uh, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. And this is also a book that's on uh, Kindle Unlimited, so you can read it for free, basically, which is um, which is a nice little feature, also. So if you're if you've got that, there's no harm in getting it. And if this conversation didn't convince you, you need to read the book. I don't know what will. To be honest, beyond my final question, Jared, is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal? What is one thing you can do this week? Um, Oh, oh, that is a really good question. Oh, I've got, I've got like two or three different kind of ideas popping around my brain. You got to narrow it down to here's one, a, here's though, one. Focus it down. Just okay, one here's, thing. Dang. Okay. Here's going to be my one thing. Oh, I don't know how this would work in practice, but for one week, say nothing. Just say not a thing. And, and I, I there's something about, when we become leaders and not everyone, the good leaders don't do this. So some of you are already totally fine, but if you're anything like me, I'm a, I'm a filthy leader because I try to lead. I try to actually do stuff and nine times out of 10, you don't need to do anything. So one of the best things I I was, there's a new principal at a school down the street and they came in and they didn't say anything, didn't say a word 
for about a month. And everyone thought, well, that's a dud. But in that month, everyone started taking up new responsibilities and kind of working. They're like, okay, well, if you're not going to tell me anything, I'm going to do this. And at the end of that month, she finally then spoke and she said, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I understand. And everyone's like, dang, you really get the system very well, don't you? It's like, yeah, because I've just been listening. So I would say try for one week. Don't say anything. Just listen and see what the heck happens. See how people respond. See if they step up into it and see kind of what you can learn from just not trying to lead for a bit. Uh, does that sound, you, you would know more than I do. Does that sound like a viable kind of option? Yeah, I think there's definitely some, some challenges with that, but I, I say go for it. I did a little experiment um, where for about a month, I would not say anything in any meeting until everybody else in the meeting had said something. And yeah. um, it was really, really hard for me because I'm a, I'm a talker, I'm a verbal processor. And so like, that's how I, I, I that's how I understand things. But it, even, you know, and I was in a training during that week and there were, you know, people who were brand new to the education profession who were uh, paraprofessionals and special ed classrooms who were in that training with me. And, and I was the principal, the most quote unquote senior person in that room and should have had lots of answers. And I determined that I wasn't going to talk till everybody else had their turn. And, and I learned a lot from those people that my, I arrogantly thought I couldn't, I arrogantly thought that they didn't have anything to teach me, but boy, they sure did. And so I would say, yeah, give it a shot. And the other amazing thing is that when you are, when you are quiet and you don't make a decision, people have to make their own decision. And that is, that is powerful for them to be able to do also. So yeah. I don't see there's a lot of downside to that. We'll see. And if it doesn't work, say something. It's as hard as if you, if you need to break it, it's as hard as just opening your mouth. So it's not, a, it's, an, it's not a huge investment, maybe just something to try. Yeah. Well, and if you do do it, we, Jared and I both would love to Heck hear yeah. about it. So if you are quiet for a week, let us know what I'd you experienced. Love to hear back. We'd love that. to share your story because that would be fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me on. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, once again, the book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Get Them Right. And you can check out the book and more at lmeglobal.net. Uh, that stands for Learning Made Easy Global.net. Thank you, Jared, so much for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you. I'll see you guys next time. Hey, middle school principals, what if I told you that all your teachers had to do to teach your students really valuable social and emotional competencies was just press play? In Control SEL is a fully automated video curriculum that teachers and students absolutely love. And that's because it's easy, and it looks just like a Netflix or a YouTube show. So all you have to do to hear about how it can completely transform your school is schedule your call. Tell us Jethro sent you and you'll get 20% off if you feel like it's a good fit. So go now to www.incontrolsel.com slash strategy call to schedule your call today. The link will be in the show notes. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. 
That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.